We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 and Snapchat at hstebbings, both, as you know, with two Bs. But to the show today, and we have a round two with this guest. I always find I learn and gain so much from my conversations with him, and so I really wanted to invite this very special founder back, and I'm thrilled to say we have Harry Glazer rejoining us in the hot seat today. For those that missed round one, it's a cracker, but on Harry, he's the founder and CEO at Periscope Data, the startup that allows you to transform your business with the fastest, most powerful analytics platform. To date, Periscope have raised over $34 million in funding from some of the very best in the business, including Bessemer, SV Angel, DFJ, Sousa Ventures, and Data Collective, just to name a few. And with this funding, they now serve over 975 customers, including the likes of Adobe, Flexport, Tinder, New Relic, and more. And prior to founding Periscope, Harry was a product manager at Google. And fun fact about Periscope, it was voted the best small company to work for in 2017. I do also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Harry many months ago now, the start of a great friendship between two Harrys. But before we dive into the show today, let's face it, email gets messy and complicated, especially with Google Groups and distribution lists. Front, the first shared inbox for Teams, makes it easy to manage your company's info at and help at email addresses. With Front, Teams get back to customers faster with easy internal collaboration and clear owners so there's no confusion. Front also works with Twitter, Facebook, Twilio, SMS, and live chat, so your team manages everything in one place and never misses a message again. Today, companies such as Shopify, HubSpot, General Assembly, and Y Combinator all use Front to help their teams work better together, and you can sign up for a free trial today at frontapp.com. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace for fine art, antiques, and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries, and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. It works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including the likes of Sotheby's and Philips, and is Sotheby's core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions. And you can learn more at invaluable.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Invaluable did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's also got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, you can get that at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Harry Glazer, founder and CEO at Periscope Data. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Harry, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show for a second time. What can I say? I obviously so enjoyed having you the first time. I thought this was a must. So thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you, Harry. It's great to be here. Not at all, but I'd love to kick off. And for anyone that maybe missed round one with a little bit about you and how you came to create the best place to work in San Francisco (laughs) one and came to found Periscope. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So the true story is I really wanted to work with my friend, Tom. Tom is our co-founder and CTO, chief technical officer. And, you know, we've known each other now for 15, 16 years. And he was and is the very best engineer that I know. And for a while there, I was working at Google in product and he was working at Microsoft in uh, in engineering on the machine learning algorithms that rank the 10 blue links search ranking at Bing. And I really felt like at some point he's going to invent something world changing and my 
career plan was to be standing near enough to him that I would get half the credit when that happened. And so <laughs> over a period of multiple years, it was my very first recruiting job, which turns out to be the hardest and most important part of running a company. And over the course of a couple of years, I recruited him to leave his life behind and move to San Francisco to start a company with me. And eventually he did do it and he got here and we had no idea what we were going to do. And so we just started building prototypes and trying to sell them until one stuck and Periscope Data was the little side project that could. And it got its first two customers almost by itself. It was actually embarrassingly took us a little while to realize that our side project had more traction than our main project. But when we finally pivoted, we were able to raise seed funding pretty quickly. We were able to rebuild the product, hire a couple of engineers that I had worked with at Google and relaunch the product. And at that point, we did something like 500x growth in three years. My challenges became the challenges of scaling the company, hiring, process, teams, management, scaling the sales organization, scaling the engineering organization, all of that stuff. And it's been quite a ride. And then I guess recently, a few websites finally caught on to what I've known for a couple of years, which is that Periscope Data is absolutely the best place to work. Uh, and we're really proud of that. Well, obviously the best place to work. I do have to ask one subsequent question to that. What do you think it was that made him leave the life of security and comfort for building prototypes with you on the West Coast? You know, I, I try not to ask too many questions about that. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's been the same in California since at least the gold rush. You know, it was an adventure. It was, let's move to California and strike out on our own and see what we can do together. And I think after a couple of years of the cushy corporate life, people sort of figure out whether that's for them or not. And if it's not, then it's time to strike out on an adventure. No, I couldn't agree with you more, but I do want to break the interview up today into a couple of different segments, starting on the theme of diversity and building diverse teams, then moving to the importance of data teams, and then finishing on how to move up market. Does that sound good to you, Harry? That sounds great. Thank you. So starting on the diverse teams element, I think there's a lot of teams and more specifically SaaS companies in the valley that are sitting there realizing that they're a group of white guys. So my question (laughs) to you is, what should they do? What's that next step? Yeah. So this, I think, is, as you said, really common. And this was certainly us. We woke up one day and we realized that we were seven white guys working on a SaaS product. And that meant that we were part of the problem. And as I think most people are aware at this point, the tech industry has a long way to go in terms of becoming more inclusive and becoming more diverse. And we really wanted to be a part of that transition and be part of the solution. And we didn't want to be part of the problem. And we banged our heads on it for quite a while trying to figure out what to do. And I'll tell you what worked for us. Step one is you have to get the whole team on board. This is going to be a culture shift for your company. And the first thing that you need to do is make sure everybody on the team is on board for the culture shift. And so what that looks like for me is taking every single member of the team on a one-on-one, telling them how I think this is maybe the most key business challenge that we have at this point and is preventing us from becoming a more successful company. And that I propose to make this our central priority. And most people in that moment will respond in the affirmative, but it does also give you the opportunity to identify if there are folks on the team who are not on board and don't think that diversity and inclusion is a priority. And those folks may have to be moved out. And that's just a reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. Then you get the team together for an all hands. You tell them, okay, this is going to be our new priority. And that leads into thing two that you need to do, which is address the culture. Before you will be successful in building a diverse team, you are going to have to have a culture that is inclusive and welcoming and warm and kind. And so you need to look around at your company and go, what here might not make everybody feel welcome when they walk in the door? Are there a lot of video games being played late into the night? Is there a lot of drinking? Is the office maybe the kind of mess that you would expect when you get seven guys in their 20s together? All of these things need to be changed at a fundamental level. We did it in one fell swoop. We said, okay, we're moving on from this old culture and we're going to build a more inclusive, more welcoming culture. We're getting rid of the video games. We're getting rid of a lot of the booze and we're going to move forward in a more inclusive way. And that I think is the most key part. And I think where I see teams fail is they move right to 
trying to recruit diverse candidates without addressing the underlying culture, and then they're unsuccessful. The third and final thing that you need to do is look at the metrics in the pipeline for your candidate pool. So once you've got the more inclusive culture, you need to take a hard look at which sources of candidates are bringing you a diverse pipeline and which aren't. And in particular, you may find that your network is not bringing you a group of diverse candidates. This was certainly the case for me. And we put a pause on hiring from our network and doubled down on other sources of candidates, even though they're harder to hire from because they were producing a more diverse candidate pool. So that's what worked for us. Can I ask, which channels really produce that diverse stream of candidates that you were really looking to incorporate into the company? Yeah, I would say the one that I remember well is AngelList. Another one that I remember well is Hired.com. I think that, and this is just a guess, but folks from underrepresented groups who may not have the network that uh, other folks do are more likely to be found on more programmatic channels. So job boards, uh, listings, that kind of thing, because they're not finding jobs through their friends the way that people with a deeper network will maybe do. And then I I often have uh, conversations with male SaaS founders who say, listen, we've got eight white guys and we really want to change it. But the trouble is we're eight white guys. And so hiring that first female candidate is really tough because they look at our current environment and go, it's eight white guys. I'm going to be the only female. How do you think about that and kind of the onboarding of the very first? Yeah. So I remember it well. I think that first of all, the reason that it's hard is not just that you're eight white guys. It's that when you walk into the office, when you talk to the team, when you look around at the environment, you're looking at an environment that maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally does not feel welcoming to people who are not white guys. This is where it comes back to, is there a lot of ping pong in the office? Is there a lot of halo in the office? What is the office feel like? What does the culture feel like? How are we communicating with each other? Are we warm and welcoming? Are we kind and inclusive? Or is there a lot of aggressive, negative behavior that might turn off some of those employees? Realistically, I think at eight, it's not too late and you absolutely can recruit a diverse candidate pool. But if you're not being successful, I think you need to look beyond the demographics of your own team and into whether your culture is really set up for a diverse candidate pool to succeed. Can I ask, specifically applied to sales, which is often one of aggressive, male, egotistical kind of prowess, how do you think about that and applying that to a, a maybe much more inclusive cultural element? You know what? I don't think that sales has to be that way. I don't think that our sales team necessarily is that way. I think that there are a lot of stereotypes and engineering can be that way too in sort of stereotypical engineering environments where, you know, there's a lot of kind of negative direct communication, maybe some grumpiness, you know, maybe some of that behavior there. And I think if you start promoting a more inclusive, more welcoming, more kind way of working, that doesn't tend to be contrary to results in sales or engineering. In fact, we found quite the opposite. And we found that we were able to tap into a stronger candidate pool than we otherwise would have been able to tap into because folks who don't want that aggressive, combative, you know, sales organization find the place to be a much more, you know, a much happier place to work and they want to work there. So you're in the center of the valley now in in all of the conversation and the the center of it. I'm intrigued. Looking at kind of other founders and other startups, if you were to say there's one big mistake that these companies make in trying to incorporate this inclusive culture, what would you say it is? I think it's for sure skipping the culture part. I think you see a lot of founders these days going, oh shit, I need to get on the diversity bandwagon, pounding on recruiters and pounding on metrics right away. And it's admirable the goals that they have in mind, but they need to look deeper at why they're being unsuccessful in hiring a diverse team. It's not because the candidates aren't there. It's not because the people aren't there. Nine times out of 10, I find that people find it too uncomfortable to take a hard look at their own culture and whether it's really a welcoming place. And that is the key problem that they have and the key mistake that they make. But if diversity is a crucial part of the team, we've chatted before and you said that data professionals also in the the kind of same theme of crucial must be on the founding team. I'm, I'm intrigued just to start with on some nomenclature. How would you define a data professional? Yeah, so I would say these days you 
you are seeing a new teammate, a new team member on these core teams. And it's a data analyst whose job is to investigate the key critical business issues of the day, figure out what the key drivers of the business are, and then surface those drivers so that people can make decisions with data. And there will be new investigations that they need to do every day based on whatever's happening in the business that day. And my observation is that teams that are formed with data on the founding team, with data as part of the day-to-day decision-making process from the very beginning, tend to outperform companies that do not. We now mostly make our money from larger enterprises, but in the beginning, we sold to a lot of startups and we would see startups with three people, uh, one of whom was a full-time data analyst. And those teams would, over time, be the ones that would grow with us and are now still customers, but they have 1,000, 2,000 employees in large data organizations. And they have tended to be the ones that beat their competitors and go on to succeed. And I believe it's because they had data baked into their DNA from the early days. So what are the core benefits of that, though? Drilling one layer down, if they're the people who expand, if they're the ones who are successful, what are the kind of core benefits of having that from the offset? Yeah, I would say there's two. And the first one is the quality of decision-making that happens at the company on a day-to-day basis. At a lot of companies, you know, the decision of the day, should we double down on this marketing channel? Should we scale up the sales team? What should we do about this issue in the market that we're observing? Made by swags and gut feel. And if you can have a culture and have a cadence where you are looking at the data, the data is available and you are looking at it every day as part of making your everyday decisions, the quality of the decision that the team makes every day becomes much higher. And that leads into my second point, which is the culture of the company changes and becomes much more rigorous about whether there are good decisions. And so what's really amazing to watch is it's not just the CEO and the management team making these decisions with the aid of the data team. What happens is it flows throughout the rest of the culture. It becomes a data-driven culture and there becomes an expectation at every level of the organization that we will be looking at data as part of making any given decision. Some engineer is part of whether to prioritize one feature or another. Some salesperson as to whether this opportunity is the one they should focus on or that one. When there becomes an expectation that we will look at data to make this decision, the company overall becomes a much stronger company that makes much better, faster decisions. So now we have that core data professional in the founding team. We know the benefits that this derives. How do we think then about scaling that kind of data professional successfully? And what are the kind of core themes to think about here? Yeah. So as the team scales, you're going to need to do two things. One is very common for any team at a company that's scaling, which is it needs professional management at some point. The wrong way to do this is to start scattering the data analysts around the organization. I'll put two data analysts in sales. I'll put one data analyst in marketing, two data analysts in engineering. That does not work. You need a central data team. It needs to report up to the CEO, COO, CTO, somebody with a C in their title. And you need a head of data, director of data, VP of data that owns the way the data flows to the organization. And then also the data team will start to professionalize and specialize. Just like the sales team with their SDRs, their AEs, and their CSMs, you are going to have a data team that has data engineers that integrate the data, data analysts that investigate the data and find answers, and data scientists that model the data and predict the future. That's all a pretty normal part of scaling, and that's something that your head of data that you hire can help you do. They can help you with how many of each of these roles do you need, when is the right time to hire them, how do we evaluate them, etc. I do have to ask, you said there about kind of the installation of management team. When does that mm-hmm. fundamental transition come between kind of the, the data professional to the specialized data name your function? Yeah, I mean, I'm just spitballing, but I'd say between 25 and 50 employees is ideal. That tends to be the time sort of post-Series A when the management team starts to professionalize. You'll get your VP sales, you'll get your VP marketing, you'll get your VP engineering. I mean, at that time, you want to look for a header of VP of data who can professionalize that team, scale it up, sit in on the management team, etc. Personally, having done this yourself and scaling so successfully as you have done the data team, where have you found the most common challenges in the scaling? I think that the way that the organization needs to work is there's a centralized data 
team that works on the data challenges at the company, but then they also integrate with the different departments. So even though they report up centrally, you may have a data analyst who specializes in marketing challenges and is an honorary member of the marketing team. You may also have a data analyst who specializes in product engineering challenges and is an honorary member of the product team. And that kind of matrix organization, it occurs in a lot of places. It occurs in design teams, right? It occurs in product teams, but it's always a little bit tricky to pull off and you want to make sure that the culture is right. And if you have a good team that just has that right data-driven culture and just wants to get to the right answer, then it works pretty well. But you want to make sure that they're integrating successfully with the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm. I do have to ask one question before we move into moving up market, which is probably my favorite topic of all. But it's we've spoken about culture a lot today. I'm intrigued here. How do you create a culture of responsibility and accountability within Periscope, but also not a culture of fear? Yeah, I think it goes to what happens when a number is missed, what happens when a mistake is made, what happens when the roadmap is slipped. And so you want to give people aggressive goals. You want to set up processes by which we expect to hit those goals and by which we track those goals. And then the key moment is the miss. Maybe you've set up this process right after your Series A, you get the VP sales, you and the VP sales agree on the targets. Q1 is great. Q2 is great. Q3, uh uh-oh, right? And in that moment, as a CEO, you want to maintain the accountability, but you also want to pivot right to, okay, nobody's fired. I'm not mad. We're all just here to find out what happened. And for me, it's often, let's dig into the data together. Let's figure out together what happened and let's make an action plan so that we recover and have a strong Q4. And you will build a lot of loyalty on your team when you don't huff and puff, when you don't get angry and when no heads roll. But instead you go, okay, cool. This happens sometimes. We need to figure out what the root cause is so that we can get after it. And then what happens is that the team becomes much more open about sharing what's going well and what's going poorly because they feel that kind of psychological safety. They know that there's an expectation that will hit these goals. They know that they need to be executing against these goals, but they also know if they perceive a roadblock or a problem, they are free to raise their hand and say, hey, I think that this is putting our goal at risk. Let's talk about it. And so that's the way I approach it. No, absolutely. I, I love that method of accountability. But I do want to touch on my favorite topic before we move into the quick fire, being the most common question I received from SaaS founders. And it's, Harry, is it better to start an enterprise and move down to SMB or vice versa? So I'm going to put this to you, SMB to enterprise or enterprise to SMB and why? Gosh, I may be really biased because of the trajectory Periscope data is on. I really do think that SMB to enterprise is right. And I think the problems that are that occur when you do enterprise to SMB are a couple. One, the deal cycles are so long that it's so hard to know if you have something. If it's going to take you a year to get that first customer, then you have a year of not knowing whether the company is really going to be successful. Do we have the product that the enterprise wants to buy? Let's engage in a year-long sales cycle and find out. That year is death at the seed stage. It's so hard. And then number two, I see a lot of companies get that first enterprise customer and then get stuck servicing that enterprise customer forever and never move on to building a scalable product that multiple companies want to buy because they're just stuck in service mode for the one customer that's keeping the lights on. And so I really do like starting at SMB where you can get rapid product feedback. There's not a lot of process, not a lot of management chain or or bureaucracy between you and the user who's telling you whether this is a good product or not. And so, you know, you're getting that rapid feedback. You're getting those initial dollars in the door, which is the real feedback. And then once you have a scalable engine serving SMBs, you go, okay, in order for us to build a truly great enterprise here, in order for us to build a franchise that will IPO and beyond, we have to start moving up market. And you do that from a base of a successful scaled up company. So I do have to posit one thing, which is if you're smashing SMB like you have done and and like a couple of others have done from FreshBooks to your pipe drives of the world, why not just continue to crush SMB? Why make that monumental move and commitment to enterprise? I think that you have to take a hard look at your market and where your market is really. So I think, you know, for a company like FreshBooks that does accounting and which businesses need accounting, every single business in the world, right? 
right? And so that means they can sell to flower shops, they can sell to bodegas, you know, they can sell to laundromats, and that all makes complete sense. We sell to companies that have data teams. Laundromats and flower shops don't have data teams, but a lot of enterprises have data teams. And so if that's you, if you're not going to be selling to flower shops, if you're not Yelp or FreshBooks, then you need to be looking hard at where is the market really? And for us, probably two-thirds plus of the market is in mid-market and enterprise. And so it makes complete sense that we would move up market. That makes complete sense. But I, I do want to talk about then a couple of things. To me, there's two big things that change when you move up market. First, how does the product change and have to change when you move up market? Yeah. So first of all, the easy answer to that question is there's a lot of homework that you have to do. Active directory integrations, security certifications, compliance, you know, integrations with all these different back office systems that enterprises have. That's the easy answer. That's, of course, that you have to do that. But really, more deeply, it changes the way that you prioritize your product roadmap. You have to be thinking about everything through a lens of, this is a feature that a thousand users are going to use at this corporation at once. How is that feature going to break when that happens? What is the onboarding flow for a thousand users, right? What are the management challenges? What's the workflow here? What are the different roles of those people and how are those roles going to interact with each other on the platform? And it makes every feature more sophisticated and more complex. And when you're really successful at moving up market, you are looking at every prioritization decision and every design decision through that lens. The, the second and kind of equally as important is how does the structure of the team change? This can be from sales where much longer sales cycles to customer success where fundamental in you know retention. Yeah, I mean, I would say more broadly, moving up market is a company-wide commitment and a lot of things change as a, as a consequence of that company-wide commitment. And for sure, in every part of the organization, you're going to want a management team that is experienced and that is committed to moving up market. And that may mean some changes on the team. As people up market marketing in particular is very different from down market marketing. Down market, you know, SMB marketing is a lot of numerical sort of demand gen. It's very math heavy. Whereas up market marketing can be a lot more about positioning and messaging, PR, all of these kinds of things. And so you want to sit down with the management team and really plot out the entire company journey and say, what is our marketing going to look like up market? What is our sales process going to look like up market? What's our roadmap going to look like up market? What's our engineering process going to look like up market? And all of that becomes part of a holistic strategy that you deliver to the wider team. That's how you become successful with the kind of wider company commitment. So when you look at all of that together, what was the biggest challenge about your transition up market? Gosh, you know, if I had to pick one, I would say the marketing that we do now is nothing like the marketing that we did a year ago. I think we basically had to rebuild our entire muscle around how we talk about ourselves to the market. When you're first starting out as a startup and when you're selling primarily to SMBs, you want to talk about a specific problem that you solve and you want to talk about the very specific solution that they will have tomorrow. We used to use this tagline in ads that I loved. It was uh, type SQL, get charts, right? And it was very simple. And for an individual analyst at that small company, it made complete sense about what they would do with the product in order to be successful. Now we talk about a unified platform that we will deliver that supports all of these different workflows for a diverse data team that includes the data engineers, data analysts, and data scientists that we serve, and that head of data that's managing them all. And it's more abstract, and it's more strategic, and it requires multiple people to understand it, and it requires a whole process for us to explain to you how your business process is going to change as a result of this software that you're getting. And that's a much more sophisticated, much more strategic approach to marketing than the original approach. The original approach is much simpler, but it's unsuccessful at market. I think managing that transition across the team was probably our biggest challenge. Well, speaking of sophisticated and strategic, I mean, there's nothing more sophisticated than Harry's 60-second Sasta, the quick fire round. <laughs> okay, I can't believe that. I transitioned with that, but let's go with it. Well, um, well done, Harry. Well done. Thank you so much. I'll take credit for that later. Periscope, as we said, voted the best small business to work in 2017. What can a founder do today to make their startup a better place 
to work. It's all about the focus on the culture, right? These all these like it's nice to see people naming us best place to work, etc. That's a trailing indicator. That is the result of years of work on the culture that was not done for awards. It's done for its own sake. It's done to make this a great place to work. What can one founder do tomorrow? I would say look at your calendar. Are you spending all of it coding? Are you spending all of it on product? Are you spending all of it on sales? If you have not carved out real founder time to work on the culture and improve the culture, that indicates to me that it's not a priority. And if this is important to you, then that needs to change. You recently tweeted, you don't choose the kind of CEO you are. What kind of CEO are you then, Harry? God, I sound so full of myself. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, in all honesty, it changes every six months. For a while there, I was just a full-time executive recruiter as we were pulling together the management team. And that was the most important thing. Prior to that, I spent a lot of time in the data on finance and on operations because that was something you know that I handled personally for the team before we got a very experienced executive to take that over. Prior to that, I spent a lot of time on product before we had an experienced executive to take that over. And so it changes based on what the needs are of the company and what the strengths and weaknesses are of the management team. I would say these days I spend a lot of time with customers thinking about the strategic roadmap for the company. What are we building six months, one year, two years from now? How does that affect our strategy day to day? I'd say we've gotten to a nice place where we have a pretty well-rounded executive team that handles the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. And most of my focus is on the long term. Tell me a moment in your life that serves as an inflection point and changed the way you think. Okay, here's a good one. So this is in the early days of Periscope. And we had this thing. It had a lot of really exciting users. It had a lot of really exciting customers. But we're still toying around with, what exactly is this? Why has it become so popular? What is the secret sauce here? And how do we capitalize it and double down on it and make it something that, that scales itself? And I think we launched a lot of experimental product features. We launched a lot of different ways of doing data integration and different user interfaces for data analysis where we thought in our own heads were really innovative. And not a lot of them caught on during that time period. And one of our engineers, all by himself, took the box where you actually type SQL. And this is, in our product, we sell to these data teams. Data analysts are writing SQL and Python and R in our product all day long. And he took that box and he made it like 10 times bigger. And he launched it. And our usage went through the roof. And then our close rates on our trials went through the roof. And we were like, hallelujah, it's because the box is bigger. The lesson isn't take the text boxes in your product and make them bigger. The lesson is you want to be very user-focused. It's the market that's going to tell you what's strategic and interesting about the product. It's the customers that are going to tell you what's the best thing about the product. And so for us, it was getting out of our own heads from a product design point of view and getting out there with customers that really moved the needle for us in the early days. I love that. So make your text box bigger. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the right lesson. That's the title for this show. Final one. What do you know now with all the experience that you wish you'd known at the beginning when you were tinkering around looking for that next great startup idea? I would say we would have had a much easier time of it if we had thought harder about the culture from day one. If we had thought harder about what it means to have a culture where a large and diverse group of people want to work, what it means to have a culture where people feel welcome, where people feel included. You know, that transition that I described earlier in the podcast, it was hard. It required a lot of work and there was a chance that we wouldn't be successful. And I think one of the benefits of the way we did it is it turned me into a bit of an evangelist for this stuff because I realized that maybe I can help people not have to go through this sort of painful transition that we went through. But on the other hand, I will say it would have been easier for us if we had started with a real focus on the culture and with a real focus on building a really great place to work. Harry, as you know, I always love chatting to you. I'm so excited for the future with Periscope. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here.
Well, as you can tell from the interview, I always absolutely love chatting to Harry. And if you'd like to see more from Harry and the incredible culture and company that he's building at Periscope Data, you can find him on Twitter at Harry Glazer. Likewise, we'd love to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta on Instagram at hstebbings1996 or on Snapchat at hstebbings, both with two Bs. But before we leave you today, let's face it, email gets messy and complicated, especially with Google Groups and distribution lists. Front, the first shared inbox for Teams, makes it easier easy to manage your company's info at and help at email addresses. With Front, teams get back to customers faster with easy internal collaboration and clear owners so there's no confusion. Front also works with Twitter, Facebook, Twilio, SMS and live chat so your team manages everything in one place and never misses a message again. Today, companies such as Shopify, HubSpot, General Assembly and Y Combinator all use Front to help their teams work better together and you can sign up for a free trial today at frontapp.com. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS. Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace for fine art, antiques and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including Sotheby's and Philips, and is Sotheby's core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions. And you can learn more at Invaluable.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated pay payments like Invaluable did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. A fantastic read there. And as always, we so appreciate all your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.